0: Hi and welcome back to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. My name's Imi Barno, I'm an entrepreneur. I absolutely love surfing and I am your host. This is the first episode of season two and I'm so happy to be behind the mic again after a massive break and I'm extremely excited to introduce you to my guest, Jeff Hackman, aka Mr. Sunset. For a podcaster making podcasts about careers in and around surfing, my encounter with Jeff Hackman is practically like finding the Holy Grail. I must admit, I was pretty intimidated by meeting the man behind the biggest surfing brand in the world, and I felt very honoured and privileged to have a chat with him. From his home in Hawaii, Jeff accepted to get up at the crack of dawn for our conversation, and the result is a wonderful immersion into his action-packed life story. Now in his early 70s, Jeff greeted me over Skype with his twinkling blue eyes, generous smile, clean shave and an elegant black T-shirt. In fact, he was just about to set off for some surfing and managed to fit in a bit of time for me. Jeff and I delve into a few of his life stories that are filled with incredible surfing feats, friends and business achievements. He shares what it felt like to become the youngest person to win the Duke Gahanamoku contest in 1965. How this led to tootling around the world, winning even more contests and becoming world champion several times. And I guess you could say that what changed the course of Jeff's life was to negotiate the Quicksilver licence for the USA and Europe. In fact, Jeff was one of the first surf millionaires in history and he shares the extraordinary story of how he got the licence. And just a little side note, it doesn't involve signing contracts. Of course, in an hour, we didn't get a chance to go all over Jeff's life, but we definitely did dig into how it all began. What Quicksilver was like in the mid-70s and 80s, the corporate culture, overcoming the challenges of growing Quicksilver Europe, which, by the way, was probably the biggest challenge for Jeff and his partners. And we even get a sneak peek into how Quicksilver signed up Kelly Slater. Jeff's life isn't all the Bed of Roses, In fact, he's had some demons too, with the support of his family and friends, eventually encouraged him to adopt a healthier lifestyle. And his smile, acuteness and mindset are here to prove it. We talk about Jeff's latest project, Surf Till 100, initiative that he started with his best mates, Philippe Pomar and Tom Woods. In fact, you can listen to my episode with Philippe Pomar for more information there. In fact, the Surf Till 100 project is a project to keep surfing until... 100 years of age. Jeff looks perfectly prepared to tackle another 30 years of surfing and he shares his longevity secrets on the show. With Quicksilver's 50th anniversary in the news right now, this conversation is a little bonus about a celebration of life, the ocean and very savvy business moves. I think anybody listening will find something to take from this episode. So without further ado, please welcome Jeff Hackman. Hi Jeff, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm really good, Amy. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Early in the morning over here.
0: Yes, and thank you so much for getting up so early in the morning in Hawaii to make this conversation happen. I actually can't believe I'm having this conversation so far. It's such an honour. But I just wanted to know if we could kind of start this conversation going back a few years to when you were a young boy and when you moved to Hawaii as a child. And I just wanted to know when you moved from California to Hawaii, actually, what did you feel when you got there or before you got there?
1: Well, the first time I went to Hawaii was 1958. I went with this nutrition expert called Adele Davis she sent her son she was financially pretty well off and she sent her son George and he was allowed to invite a little friend to go with him and that was me so I was super fortunate because I had just started surfing I'd been surfing about one or two years and then I had this opportunity to go to Hawaii with him and I had no idea just I mean if you can imagine like everybody goes to Hawaii now but back then to go to Hawaii was really really a dream especially for a little 10-year-old kid you know so i went to hawaii with him and the experiences i had were just i can't even describe it it was like so beautiful back then and it, it was still a territory and long story short i had such a phenomenal experience and i loved the ocean and the smell of the flowers and the trade winds and the it was like a dream when i went back to california my father was a real waterman. He got me surfing, and he was a diver and a surfer and, like, motorcycle. He's kind of a real California for the, you know, like, post-war character. And I told him about Hawaii and just how beautiful the ocean was. And he decided uh, – my mother sort of – she said, why don't the two of you go the following December? Because we couldn't afford the whole family to go. I had two sisters and everything. So she said, Jeff, why don't you and your father go? Next December. So we went next December, and basically, in a nutshell, he just fell in love with the place and came back and basically told my mother and sisters that we were moving to Hawaii the next year, you know? So that's what happened. So it was just something by chance that I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Hawaii at a very young age and then talk my parents into it. And Voila, we ended up in crowd. <laughs>
0: that is amazing. And so your dad was kind of a real surfer, a waterman and a, a water lover. Did he encourage you a lot to go surfing and to progress in surfing? Was he a sort of massive help in, in to, to reaching your level and your proficiency in surfing at a very young age?
1: In the beginning stages, he was everything. He pushed me. He was so excited about surfing and passionate and just he'd been a diver before that. He was always a free diver. And then he got introduced to surfing in about the middle fifties and he tried to share it with me. And, uh, he miscalculated a couple of times when he was trying to get me going and I almost drowned a few times and uh, I hated surfing. But one time I came in and I was just crying and he thought it was about three foot, four foot, it ended up having eight and 10 foot sets. And I paddled over backwards on a cold winter day with no wetsuits in uh, Palos Verdes Cove. And I just about drowned and he couldn't get to me and blah, 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 blah. And, and when I came in, I just threw my surfboard down. and I just went, I hate this sport. I hate this. I don't like surfing at all. So I stopped surfing for a year. I didn't want to know about it, you know. And he kept pleading, going, Jeff, come on, try it again, try it again. I, go, I don't want to know about it. I hate it. And so he kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And then he actually made me a new board, a much lighter, easier board to sort of learn on. Because it, the equipment back then, especially for really young little guys, was really barbaric. I mean, it was like 35 pounds, balsa, and just horrible. So... He made me the, this board that was much lighter out of female balsa and glass was single eight-ounce glass instead of double ten and all this stuff. Anyway, he got me, finally talked me into going again. And the conditions were just perfect, like three, four foot, sunny sort of fall, early fall morning. And uh, it just took one wave. He got me lined up and got me paddled in this one wave. And I kind of knew what to do. I knew I was pretty coordinated. I was, I was in gymnastics, and I could surf in the white water and stuff, but I couldn't really get the – coordination of trimming on a green wave on a swell. And he got me lined up and just took one wave and uh he said I came paddling back out and my eyes were like alarm clocks, you know. I just like, wow just And then I was just shoulder stoked. But I had a hard time getting into it. It was a difficult process. It took a while,
0: the hawaiian conditions must be pretty gnarly anyway it must be very difficult for a young boy and with those boards and the equipment that you had it must have been even more difficult to actually make it happen
1: actually like because I'd learned in California California was difficult back then because there was no wetsuits. Wetsuits didn't exist you know so you're out in 50 degree water just with uh, board shorts and big heavy boards and everything so it was horrible you know but um, Hawaii was actually easy because it was warm and nice but California was difficult to learn for a little kid back in the 50s.
0: Wow that's amazing and so you sort of moved up in the in terms of proficiency and You were actually, you won, you were the youngest person to win the Duke contest in 1965. And how old were you at that time?
1: Uh, 17. 17. Um,
0: Yeah. What did it feel like to win that contest at such a young age?
1: You know, I really didn't even know what was going on, to be real honest. I was just invited by this guy, this older waterman surfer called Fred Van Dyke, you know, in Correlation with the Duke Corporation and Duke Onomoku and stuff. So he invited me, and I knew I could surf well because I lived out there. I, I lived not too far from Sunset Beach, and I knew my level of surfing was very good. But as far as all the professional part of the events and the uh, ABC World of Sports and the interviews and the conduct and everything, I had no idea what was going on. I was just so naive, and you know, all I knew is I loved surfing Sunset and I could surf pretty good, you know. So to answer your question, out of the water, I really didn't have any idea what was going on. Right. In the water, I what was going on.
0: <laughs> in fact, how did the competitions work when you were in the water? Was it like in professional surfing today where there were two contestants and then the one to get you the best wave would win? How did that work in those days?
1: No, well, back then it was like they invited 24 people and they had four heats of six. And then they just took three out of the six that progressed into another round and then three out of that to end up with I think it was an eight-man final and so it was very simple it was very basic you know and you just you surfed uh one two three times and then third time was a final they just had sort of like you know those horns that you speak out of and stuff and you know and it was really simple just a little card like a little card table on the beach and that was it you know oh
0: that's beautiful (laughs) so yeah
1: I'll say one thing that, yes, that of course. first two contest that I was invited to and everyone else there was 20 invitees and it was the absolute best event I'd ever been in because of the I mean the all the contestants were like just five-star treatment I mean you checked into the Royal Hawaiian which was the best hotel on your bed was like all these clothes and a thousand dollars cash and you got these sort of red cards to the best place you're like a king you know it was really well done
0: that is so cool so in terms of comparing pro surfing today with the surfing scene in 1965 i guess there are so many differences what do you think the most notable difference is um in your eye
1: i would say i mean it's so many things i mean it's like the training all that stuff but i would say If you're going to simplify it down, the biggest change is the attitude, you know, because the attitude back then, even in a professional event, was very, how can I say, it was light. It wasn't serious like today, you know, like nobody really trained and everyone was sort of most socially having fun. It was a lighter time of history, too, you know, like the population, there was nobody in the water. It was just, in so many ways, so different, you know. But I'd say attitude and for sure ability. I mean, today, the ability in surfing is just so much beyond what it was back in those days, you know, the level, the training, the just everything is different. You know? uh, yeah. But... In saying that, okay, it's definitely more professional. But in terms of just pure joy, and enjoying the moment and what was going on and, and laughing, I'm not sure that's improved, you know, for sure the level of surfing has improved.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. That's sort of the vibes. It's become incredibly competitive and there are so many stakes.
1: at. Yeah, it's, it's big money. It's serious. You know, guys have these contracts that are, you know, million plus contracts and it's a lot of money. And with the money, the bar's been lifted. But also with that, there's a little bit of a downhill side, which is the lightness, you know, the lightness of just I don't know how to explain it. It's for sure the level of surfing has improved so much, the training and for sure the monetary benefits and everything. But there's another side that maybe is a little bit detrimental, you know, that's diminished diminished a little bit. It's hard unless you've been around the planet as long as I have to maybe explain that. But, um, it's changed.
0: So how did you get your nickname, Mr. Sunset?
1: Well, I lived there. I lived at Sun, just down the beach from Sunset Beach for um, – quite a few years. And probably from 1963, 62 to 1976, I was probably surfing sunset as much or more than anyone. And I actually got, I got pretty good at it, especially in competitions. And hence the name, Mr. Sunset.
0: Mm -hmm. That's beautiful.
1: And I never really, see, because back then you didn't have leg ropes, you know, so if you fell off You basically had to – it was to go around the block of swimming in, going over the reef, and finally paddling back out was kind of like 35, 40 minutes, you know. So if you – in a session, if you fell off three or four times, you're pretty much swimming for a couple hours, you know, and uh, through riptides and everything. So it was really advantageous to not fall off, you know. So I sort of really perfected not falling off. And (laughs) so – I got the name Mr. Sunset because I surfed the break very well and I never seemed to fall off.
0: (laughs) And so you sort of moved through the 1970s in sort of winning loads of titles and becoming a real champion in surfing. And I just wanted to know what opportunities arose from your world champ status.
1: I had like at a young age, I was because of surfing, I was able to like at 21, 22 in there. I was a rep for um, a company called Golden Breed in Hawaii, and also another company called Hang 10 Sportswear. And so, you know, I was basically making a not a fantastic living, but an okay living. And I was given these positions probably because of my mostly because of my surfing notoriety and background.
0: Right, right. That's really interesting because, for example, Felipe Pobar said that when he won the um, contest in Peru and become the first world champ, he got approached by a tailor that manufactured very, very posh suits and everything. And he was taken to uh, Hollywood and he had all these sort of fancy MGM studio meetings and all sorts of things. Did you have these sorts of offers as well?
1: Yeah, not necessarily suits like Felipe, but <laughs> I got to go to Las Vegas with uh, Duconamoku and for a week and everything paid for. And I, I was dragged around on a lot of promotional trips that I wouldn't have been able to go to if I Didn't have the surfing status that I had. But see, back then, there was no industry, you know? There was nothing. I mean, there was a few surfboard manufacturers. And, yeah, there was a couple companies like Hangtan, Janssen, and this, but they were very small. And so there was no – I mean, even if you had a world-class surfing status, there was not really any industry to plug into, you know? And this was one of the reasons that later on, like sort of when I was about 20 – six years old, because there was no money in surfing. Like I, on a good year, really good year, like if I won a couple of events and got seconds in three or four or five events, there was only a total of a, probably about eight events around the world, you know, that were professional. So if you won two and got second in three or four, you know, like that was like really good results. And it was still hard to, you know, pay your mortgage and take a couple trips and just pay everything. So because there was no there was just no industry so this is what sort of directed me into the route of trying to start my own business you know i did know duke boyd who was the founder of hang 10 and he did very very well okay mm-hmm. and this was back in the early 60s and he sort of taught me quite a few things and i really respected him i thought wow that's amazing what he's done you know he's had this fantastic lifestyle out of surfing he started this company which is the two feet and the hang Ten symbol and uh, built it up into a companies where he's made really a good living out of surfing. I went, oh, that's what a dream. I want to do that. You know, went, how can I do that? You know, so because I was a rep for hang Ten, I certainly knew the rag business, the clothing business, and also another company, Golden Breed, which was a subsidiary of hang Ten. So this is sort of where I went into Quicksilver. You know, I went, well, yeah. Quicksilver's a little tiny Australian company at the time, like just a mom and pa business down in Australia, maybe I could get the license and bring it to California or America and do what my friend Duke Boyd did with Hang 10, you know, uh-huh. so... That was my dream.
0: That's amazing. So what was Quicksilver like when you discovered it? I mean, was it like they say in the legends where you had Billabong on one side of the road and Quicksilver on the other side of the road, and that was it in Torquay? Or what was the sort of whole scene like in Torquay in, at the time?
1: Rip Curl had started. Rip Curl was a really small little company with wetsuits on one side of the street. At this point, Quicksilver wasn't even on the street. They had sort of like a little... I don't know what you call it, like a little barn sort of a manufacturing plant with two or three girls, I think it was, and like really small and rural. And there was not really any, I mean, there might have been one surf shop back then in Torquay, and there was Rip Curl, and Quicksilver had sort of like a little farm sort of like sort of business. And Gordon Merchant was up on the Gold Coast, just starting to make a few pairs of Board shorts, and it was really small. The whole industry was super, super small. Uh-huh. So the first time I went to Australia was 1974, and a, a friend of mine, Mark Warren, we were going surfing, and I I had forgotten any trunks or board shorts, you know. So he said, "Oh, here's a pair you can use." So I put them on, and they were Quicksilvers, and they were quite different for the time, you know. Like back then, American produced swimwear didn't have studs and it didn't have Velcro. It just had strings and you know like little ties. So And it didn't have big, high yoke bands, you know. So this this whole product was really different. I mean, today it's no big deal, but back then it was different and definitely its own unique look. And so he gave me these board shorts and I I put them on, went surfing with them, kind of never really gave them back. (laughs) I really disliked them. They were really comfortable. The other thing, the main thing was that they were all out of this 100% poplin material, which sort of... It was kind of more like you know, a good pair of denim jeans or Levi's or something that sort of bend around your body and wash down and break down. That's what Quicksilver was like. The, the fabric was 100% cotton, so it would break down. With the sun, salt, water, and use, it would sort of bend around your body and break down, and it was really good. Where Everything else in the marketplace was synthetic. It was canvas or nylon or this or this, so Quicksilver was using cotton, which was very unusual to them kept these pair of shorts, took them back to Hawaii and used them the whole next season in Hawaii.
0: Did they have all the bright colours at the time or were they quite sort of basic, the first trunks, the first board shorts?
1: They had just solid colours and sort of like really pale pastel colours and then they had one sort of really silly looking volley print, you know, that was sort of like a green volley print that was a horrible print, but that's what they had. And this was 74 and then 1975 I went back And I think I brought about three or four pairs back to Hawaii, you know. And uh, I believe Jerry Lopez brought a couple pairs back because him and his partner, Jack Shipley, had a surf shop in Honolulu called Lightning Bolt. And Jerry brought some back and told Jack about them. And I believe this is how it went. And Jack ended up ordering some pairs from Australia directly. I think it was four dozen shorts or something. Anyway, he put them in his shop in Lightning Bolt. And they kind of sold out in a week. They just blew out of there, you know. And they were like, he bought them for $8 and they sold for 16 That was the price. Everything was sort of like just, you know, they pretty much cost $4 to make. You wholesale them for 8 and they sold retail for 16 So Jack bought these shorts for 8 bucks, and um, put them in the shop and they all blew out of there in a week, you know. So you didn't have to be a rocket scientist <laughs> to just go, wow, this is kind of a interesting thing. You know, if we could get more, we could probably – Turned it into a business, you know. So the following year, 76, I went down to Torquay with this in mind and talked to the founder. Alan Green was his name, and John Law was his partner. And I asked him if I could have a license for Quicksilver in America. And he just went like – because it was really small. I mean he was barely selling shorts in Australia, you know. So one thing led to another, and he just goes, how do I know you have the conviction to do this, Jeff? And I go – I don't know. I, I believe I can do it. I know the business a bit. And, and we were in this restaurant and, and we're drinking wine and everything. And he said, listen, if you eat, sorry, and on the tables, on the table, they had these sort of tablecloths, you know, like with holes in them. And it's sort of like these big tablecloths. And he goes, listen, eat the tablecloth and I'm about giving you the license. So I just, I sort of bits of pieces of this tablecloth and put the all this paper in my mouth and wash it down with wine and everything. And then after I did that, he's looking at me and he's got his cigarette. He started looking at me and he's just going, okay, you can have the license, you know. So I was really happy. I was, and that's how, that's sort of how things were done back then. You know? That's unbelievable. He even had a contract. He goes, listen, you can have the license for America. He goes, I want 5% of the company, 7% royalties. And I went, okay, that's great. That's fantastic. Okay. So as I'm leaving Australia, in 76. And I'm I'm going, okay, so okay, I have a license? What do I get? He handed me like this little string with these little paper paper sort of patterns on it. And he goes, here you go. These are the patterns, you know, good luck.
0: That's amazing. That is incredible. So you go back to Hawaii or you go back to California to start selling
1: these shorts? I went back to Hawaii right after that because my home was Hawaii. And a friend of mine who I'd met in Bali was staying at my house, Bob McKnight. And he was going to USC and he was a bartender at this restaurant called the cannery. And I said, Bob, listen, I got the license for Quicksilver. You wanna be my partner? And he went, Yeah. What is it again exactly? And I go, Hey, it's good. Don't worry about it, it's good. It's like <laughs> Ford Shorts, but they're really good. So we just we just shook hands and that was it. That's amazing. And so, so, so- I gave him I gave him half the license. You know, he just went, Bob, you're my friend, you're my buddy, here you go. He got half, I got half.
0: That's brilliant. And so what was the kind of sales structure and the distribution structure for Quicksilver when it started? Like, is it a kind of Steve Jobs story where you're out of the back of the garage and and selling the, the shorts? Or or did you have a kind of network of, of surf shops that you'd sell, distribute the shorts through? How did that work?
1: We knew nothing, Amy. We had no business plan. We had nothing. It was like ridiculous. But we had demand because of the photos in the time of some of the Australians, like Mark Richards and Peter Townen and Mark Warren. And it was just, it was like in 1974, 75, 76, it was these shorts to have on the North Shore of Hawaii. So consequently, there was a lot of photos and magazines. Well, the few magazines that were back in the time, there was photos. And these circulated through California and everywhere. And so people went, wow, these shorts, how do we get these shorts? So we had this demand, but we had no idea how to supply them our biggest obstacle was manufacturing. To get somebody to manufacture them the way Alan Green wanted them manufactured with the patterns and everything and, and to do it correctly was very, very difficult. At least it was for us at that time in history.
0: That's incredible. So when did the, the business actually really, truly take off and that you had to hire a load of people and you know that it actually
1: expanded? That probably wasn't until about 1978. In the beginning stages, we were just trying to manufacture these shorts i mean we were even in there doing the studs ourselves like we're doing the snaps like i was compressing the snaps and putting them in the shorts and bob was doing some of the ironing and it was like it was really basic and we had a little teeny Kwanson hut warehouse in costa mesa and we just couldn't wait until the shorts were done because we'd throw them in the back of this volkswagen van we had and we'd take them down to hobie sport and these and Val surf in the valley and we'd lay them down like donuts on the floor and go and they were all sort you could only order by size because the colors were assorted. So we'd go, okay, how many 32s you want? How many 34s? How many 28s or whatever? And so we'd throw them down on the floor and then they'd just pick them like assorted colors and take four to six dozen was a normal order and then just write us a check, you know? So we just started doing this up and down the coast and fortunately we had a lot more demand than supply.
0: That's really interesting. And did you ever sort of manage to get still go surfing at that time? I mean, did that business project really take up a lot of your time and sort of we
1: still surf? We, but we worked very hard in the beginning stages because, uh, like any business, to get it up and going is difficult. You know, especially with no money. Yeah. So no, but we surfed, and, and even sort of our first real year in in business, I think, which was '78, um, we were taking trips to Hawaii and going to Mexico and going on surf trips through the business. I think the first year in business, the first real year in business, I think we did a million dollars and we're leasing cars and paying salaries and everything. And at the end, our accountant said, you know what, you guys have a really good business. You're making really good money. And we went, wow, this is great. This is fantastic.
0: (laughs) And so what was the corporate culture at Quicksilver at the time in the mid 80s, for example?
1: Well, that was quite a like, we didn't really go public until like, I think it was eighty six, nineteen eighty six. 1986, sort of between 78 and 86. It was just our own little business, and it was fantastic. And then, but in that period, like, to be honest, I had some substance abuse problems, and I moved to Australia and started um, the, I had the opportunity to start the company with Harry Hodge and uh, and Bridget Daragron and John Winship in France. Mm-hmm. That was like 1984, and that was challenging. I mean, America had a serving culture. You know, it had, by, by the late 60s, early 70s, it had quite a surfing culture. So to start a business like Quicksilver wasn't so difficult. But France, there was no serving culture. There was no surf shops, there was nothing. And you had eight months of winter and four months of summer. You know, we were trying to sell t-shirts and board shorts. You know? So, and we didn't speak the language, and we had no money. And France was really a challenge.
0: right. And so how did that actually expand? Was it more media coverage or was it more the surfers that you were sponsoring at the time? What was the key to the explosion of Quicksilver in Europe?
1: That's a good question. Okay, because we started in 84, kind of 84, 85 that summer. And by sort of 86, we were really struggling. You know, Um, one of the things that really, which is not really known, but uh, the things that really made it possible for us to survive was a bank manager in credit Agricole called, um, uh, Henri Pomeris was his name. And he, 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 tr- he believed in us. And so he extended us this enormous line of credit that there, no assets. I mean, we didn't even own cars. We had no real estate, no cars, nothing, you know? And he kept extending this credit line, extending this credit line. And, um, if it wasn't for him, I don't think we'd be in business. But to answer your question, the thing that really changed was sort of 1987, 88, when um, snowboarding started to really kick in. Because the crossover between snowboarding and surfing—you know, guys would go, surfers would go up in the mountains, and they they talk to the snowboarders and go, "Hey, what do you what do you do?" and in um summertime they go, oh, nothing. They go, Oh, come down to Beritz or Hassegor and come surfing, you know. And vice versa, you know, in wintertime the snowboarders are going, Hey, come up to the Alps and, and uh so the crossover, I mean it was really extreme. It it, it was condensed into probably one year where we we're struggling, 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 and then with the help of snowboarding and the crossover, then following year we we're just we tripled or something like this, you know. It was amazing, you know. So the timing was good.
0: Yeah. And so, it's, what were the challenges that you faced running the major, the biggest surf brand in the world? I mean, it, it must have been pretty stressful and a lot of responsibility. How did you sort of cope with the challenges of the whole position of having grown that business and being at the top of it? And...
1: Well, it goes in stages. You know, you have these growth stages, and I have three other partners. This is in Europe. To be honest, America seemed to be really easy, you know, because you had this demand, we had financing we sort of it just sort of seemed automatic where france on the other hand was a total challenge was very very difficult and i'd say the biggest challenge was um cash flow because we were a victim of our own growth and we're underfinanced, like a lot of starting out entrepreneurs and we're doubling and tripling every year and we, we couldn't finance it you know so i'd say that was our biggest challenge and then also the weather in france the weather because we were a summer company I remember one, uh, I think it was 85 or 86, we were at a Salon Nautique in, in Paris at a show and it was like minus 10 and we were selling board shorts and it was snowing, and we are selling board shorts and t-shirts, you know, and just going, we're not going to survive. This isn't working, man. So we had to immediately figure out a way to exist through winter and what we did, because at the time we had all these great prints. That was our strength. We were a print house. We had like War paint and Echo Beach and all these really good artists like, uh, in house that were giving us all this very original creative art. So we were up in the Alps one time and we, um, Harry Hodge and myself were on a, just a chairlift and we're looking at all the, everyone skiing and snowboarding and everything we're going, look at that, everybody's in blue or red or black, you know? They are going, oh God, you know? And they were going like, what if we, it was just like a, five-second brainstorm, we we're, we're going like, why don't we put our prints into some technical s- stuff for the mountains? Because snowboarding was just getting going, you know, so we went – and they, the, the snowboarders had a little bit more of a flexible attitude than the, the classic skiers, you know, back then. Now it's a crossover. It's all, all sort of the same. Like back then it was traditional skiers, and snowboarding was sort of like a little bit of a, the raw, the, you know, it wasn't really accepted. But the mentality was closer to our surfing mentality. So – We started making some jackets and these sort of technical ski suits with the war paint and the Echo beach and just all our prints, you know, and they just fired. So that all stepped us up through the winter months and, you know, everything just took off after that.
0: That's that's incredible. And so... The question is regarding Kelly Slater because when I started surfing, I think it was probably the first year that Kelly Slater really kind of did his debut and was becoming a massive champion. How did that encounter with Kelly Slater happen?
1: The first time I saw Kelly was at a, I think, 85 or 86, it was at a world contest that Quicksilver put on, actually in Nuki, you know, and Kelly was on the uh, American team. It was an amateur event, and Kelly was on the American team, and he was uh, 13 years old, you know, and I was contest director at the time, and I remember watching Kelly, and he was – his surfing was very sophisticated for his age, you know, like his his lines and everything, and I remember remember being very impressed, you know, but he somehow sort of – went under the radar. Like there was some other people getting a lot of notoriety and stuff. And Kelly sort of was sort of under the radar a bit, but his surfing was way beyond his years. Mm-hmm. And then I think it would have been about uh, 87 or maybe about 88. And Kelly started, was going to Hawaii, he was starting to go to Hawaii. And Pierre Yes was in Hawaii, you know, and I think Kelly was 15 at the time, 15 years old, maybe 16, 15 or 16. And and Pierre was really impressed with Kelly. And Pierre came back to France, and he was talking with me, and he's going, Jeff, what do you think? You know, he said, hey, Kelly Slater's really, really a good little young surfer on the North Shore and stuff. And I remembered Kelly at the uh, 85 or 86 World Contest, you know, and I was going, yeah, he's really talented. He's really, really advanced for his lines, and his moves are way beyond his age and stuff. So Pierre went, well, Jeff, will you back me? I want to take this to sort of like a headquarters, you know, whatever that was back then. It would have been probably more. It would have been more in America, you know, and and lobby that we should give, uh, try to get Kelly signed up for Quicksilver, you know. So I backed Pierre a hundred percent, and uh, then Pierre went and sort of lobbied with Bob McKnight, who was in California, and his contract was developed, you know. But the driving force behind it was Pierre, and yes.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: Not a lot of people give him credit for that, but it was Pierre.
0: That's amazing. I didn't realize that. And um, well, now we know that the rest is history because winning 11 times the the world championship and things like that is just an incredible track record. And well done for you guys for backing him at the time. It was uh, pretty bold. Sort of move on to, in the interview, you were saying that you had some substance abuse and problems and everything. and, And there were many a time where you had to overcome this problem. I was just wondered how the epiphany sort of happened for you to really decide to commit to taking care of your health how did that happen
1: I've always like through my whole life even with that had as a lot of people do and it's just life you have mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys you know and you, you try to overcome them but even at a young age when I was uh, growing up on the north shore with sort of the back end of all these pioneer surfers from the 50s and I was sort of like the little guy because my I was diving with Jose Angel and Fred Van Dyke and Peter Cole and Pat Curran and these guys. Or not so much Pat Curran, but a lot with Jose Angel and Ricky Green. And so these people were all, because of their lifestyle, all very healthy people. They ate very well. They didn't abuse alcohol. They didn't smoke. They were active, active, active and vibrant. you know So I was sort of brought up in that atmosphere. So I always ate very well and sort of you know, and, and was physical and, and sportive and all this stuff, you know, but I did have some years where, uh, I was caught up in a lot of substance abuse, you know, and it was a very, very big struggle for me. And then coming out of it, you know, I was healthy and I was surfing, I was surfing good and everything. But in the last, uh, I'd say in the last five years, well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you, you can relate to this one. So I think four years ago I was in, um, Roti Island in Indonesia and Felipe was there. And I've known Felipe for, I mean, since he first came to Hawaii, I think, when he was like 19 years old. You know, I, I served with Felipe and everything. But Felipe at the time was 72 years old or 73 years old or something. And he was paddling all over the ocean and, and serving really strong for a, a 70-year-old man. know, yeah, I think I was like 68 or something. And so I was very, very impressed with Felipe. And then coming back to Kauai, where Felipe lives and I live. And I was talking to Felipe, and, you know, we sort of started talking about just trying to surf to 100 years old, you know. And I, he told me, he said, Jeff, you know, you want to try to surf to 100 years old? I, I, just, I just laughed. I just started crying. I said, Felipe, that's impossible. You know, like, that's ridiculous. And he goes, but is it really? You know, I said, but isn't it a good goal? I'm like, yeah, it's a fantastic goal. And then the more I started talking, I just went like, yeah, what a great goal, you know, to try to improve, you know, instead of just accepting age and, you know, getting weaker and weaker, why not try to keep going and just try to get better, you know, and so the light just came on, and then I just went, wow, what a great mission, what a great thing to strive for, so Felipe introduced me to a friend of his, Tom Woods, who was sort of like very, very He'd worked in the anti-aging business and very knowledgeable on a lot of health issues and, and, um, sort of like, uh, diet and everything. And, and um, so the three of us started talking and we're going, wow, what a great goal. What if we can not only do it for ourselves, but sort of help people. And I mean, we're all in our sort of seventies, early seventies. Well, I'm, I'm the kid. I was only like, like 69 or 70, but Tom was 73 and Felipe was sort of 73, 74 and, uh, so anyway, this thing blossom of this concept of just trying to sort of uh, surf longer, surf stronger and, and also along the way sort of help people do the same thing. Very simple, but just that was it.
0: So so um do you think the fact that you've been chasing adrenaline is also one of the reasons that you want life to last a lot longer and just to keep on chasing this adrenaline is that part of your what sort of your fuel?
1: Okay, here's the deal. I'll cut to the chase. The best thing I've ever done in my life is surf 10-foot, 12-foot waves in at Honolulu Bay or in good or at sunset or whatever. But the thrill of surfing a really good, strong wave and pulling off the bottom and pulling up into all the sucking water and is, for me, the best thing you can do. So I want to just try to keep doing that. And to do that, I mean, you don't really have to work on it in your 30s and 40s and 50s, but in your 70s, you have to start working on it. So if you want to do that, you have to have a plan and you have to have an agenda and you have to to strive to keep things going, you know. So, I mean, I've done everything. I've done everything you can probably do in your life. And surfing really good waves makes me feel the best.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you think you could walk, walk us through your daily routine of sort of longevity? Like how you're keeping fit?
1: I mean, I could go into a lot of detail, but I'm not like a trainer or a coach or anything like that. You know, I just try to keep the fat out of my diet. I try to, you know, just uh, eat fresh things and not, not stuff that's got sugar. You can't eat sugar. That's one thing is when you get older or even younger, you've got to stay off the sugar because it'll kill you, you know. But you just got to keep the sugar out of your diet, eat fresh things, and stay active, you know. And the biggest thing, the biggest thing, not so much when you're younger, but as you get a little older, is mindset. The mindset is really the secret. Mindset, you've got to keep uh, age away. You know, mm. you, and it's so easy to have a mindset as you get older of, of just going, "Oh, I've done that, seen that." Um, you know, it's too many people. You know, just to sort of shut down. So I would say, for me, my biggest challenge is mindset. To mm. keep everything positive, keep everything mindset. It's pretty much mindset. Keep moving, and just a fairly simple, common sense diet. You know, but one of the things that really helps me is a thing that I do. It's called uh, Heart intelligence. You can actually – it's an app. You can get it on your – just iPhone. It's called Inner Balance, and it's about heart intelligence. And you just do it 20 or 30 minutes a day. If you can do it longer, it's great. And you just try to stay into coherence. And it's a – you monitor. It's a breathing. It's a hook a thing up to your ear, and you just just do it in the morning. And just by sort of doing this 20 or 30 or 40 minutes a day in the morning, it sets your whole day. You know, it's mm-hmm. like – it's kind of yoga, but it's, it's like a scientific yoga. And it actually shows you when you're coherent or moving out of coherence. So you try to stay in this green zone of coherence, and to do that, it's not possible unless you're breathing correctly, and your thoughts are really positive. As soon as you go a little negative, it goes into orange and red. or if your breathing changes it goes into orange or red, and it's a fantastic scientific app, and it really. Helps.
0: The thing that you put in your ear, is that something that you have to buy on top of the, the app, or is that sort of just a, your earphones, for the, the headphones from your phone?
1: It's kind of like headphones, but it's a specific kind of headphone that plugs into the – it's got to just plug into the iPhone, and then you put it – it's got to attach to your earlobe because it, it monitors your heart rate and everything like this. And so it just basically monitors when you're in coherence or you're out of coherence. That's and you just And you're watching it, and you can see you're off. You're going, oh, oh, I'm going out. Oh, oh, oh. It's because I was just thinking about that bill I had to pay tomorrow. <laughs> I said, come like, back, come back. You know? But that's helped me a lot. Really? Yeah.
0: we'll we'll definitely put that in the show notes of the episode. And I wanted to just talk briefly about the surf till 100 retreat that you organized last May. And I just wanted to know how that worked out and uh, what the feedback was from your participants.
1: Okay. We didn't do it. okay because we started too late and we didn't sort of, uh, we had a few people that wanted to come, but we didn't get the number of people that we wanted. So what happens, we started about two months out. Okay. And, a lot of people need a lot longer than that to plan like people have you know like pretty involved jobs that you have to plan things out maybe sort of four or five six months in advance you know and with families and all this stuff so we're doing the same thing in Huanchaco in Peru in um next May 23rd 2020 and it's really interesting. I mean, Felipe Pomar's in Peru is like a Duke Hanumoku in Hawaii. He's so well respected and he has a chance to go into these archaeological sites up in Huanchaco that nobody gets to visit. It's like private tours and we're offering that and then surfing Chicama, the longest left in the world. And, and then also learning some, um, some secrets to try to surf to 100.
0: <laughs> and this wasn't, wasn't on the list of questions, but could you tell us about Heartwave Adventure? Because that's in the Surf 100 sites, And I just wanted to understand and figure it out.
1: That's the name of our company, our holding company, Heartwave Adventures. And it's intriguing because, you know, the heart has intelligence. It really has intelligence. And if you can connect into the heart with this thing I was telling you about, this coherence, this app that called Inner Balance, and it's amazing where you can go, okay? Because the, the heart is, you know how you always hear, hey, you know, you can think with your mind, but the heart knows and you'll think from the heart and all this stuff. But it's true because if you follow your heart, it's accurate, you know, because it's, it's authentic, you know. So there's all these places you can go with uh, mindset and heart intelligence and hence the name.
0: That's beautiful. So it's literally it's it's the intuition of the heart. You're exactly. You're sort of working on developing the intuition.
1: If you can develop this and you can actually listen to it and get into coherence with it, you find that it's almost like another dimension opens up, you know. It's very interesting stuff. So that's the name Heartwave Adventures. And then through that, we have Surf to 100 and we have some other things, you know. But the main thing that we're working on is just as a human being, you know, you have to your heart.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so sweet. That's a lovely way to to sort of wrap up this interview. I know you've got some, some mega surf waiting for you, so I will not hold you up any longer. I just had a few last sort of questions that I always ask my guest at the end of the interview. And it's basically uh, some sentences to finish. Are you up for that? There's just four. Yeah. The first one would be, I love.
1: I love surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I love surfing. I miss. I miss simplicity in our present age and uh, the lack of population. <laughs> I wish. I wish I could keep improving in what I'm, I've learned in the last four or five years and develop it more and more and to where I could I could stay in, in a big percentage of the day in total coherence.
0: That's beautiful. And um, the last one is I want.
1: I don't want anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's lovely. So just one last question. How do you see The future of surfing now that it's become an Olympic... I know this is probably very controversial, so, you know.
1: (laughs) I see it crowded. (laughs) A lot of people, because I see it daily, I see a lot more acceleration on the entry level with people, entry-level participants. I see this all the time. I just see... It's so strange. Just let me back up a second. When I started surfing in the 50s, and for sure for me, it it was kind of a rebellious thing. It was an individual rebellious, loner sort of thing that you did, you know, and, um, now it's become, well, you know what it is today. It's become fashion. It's become lifestyle. It's become like sport. It's become it's like encompasses everything, you know, and with that, the extreme population on, uh, just everybody wants to serve, you know, which is a beautiful thing, but I don't know how sustainable it is or where it's going to go. You know, um, I know, I guess the wave pools are, are, um, Another avenue. I don't really know. Yeah, I wish I did. But all I know is it's definitely becoming more and more popular. And it's it's not uh, Hey, surfing is a beautiful thing. It's a fantastic thing. You know, And it's just uh, everyone should be able to enjoy it. You know, Mm -hmm. I just have no where it's going to go. I know it's going to be because I can see this. It's going to be more and more aggressive, which is a shame. But that's just due to population. It's going to advance more. I mean, I mean the stuff that they're – all the stuff they're doing today, the, the level is so high, the caliber of surfing. It's just amazing, and I, I can't take anything away from that. It, it's almost um, gymnastic. It's almost becoming a gymnastic thing. Yeah. And, you know, where the equipment is very specialized. I mean, we used to talk in terms of, you know, a foot, a foot longer, a foot – or, you know, a couple inches wider. and Everything's down to, like, centimeters, you know, and it's – I can't believe it. I mean, I I hear – you know like guys have their 510s and 5 foot 11 boards and their their step up boards for huge waves or, or bigger much bigger waves or 63s you know like to me i just go like wow that's incredible so anyway it's all becoming very finite of what guys are riding at least at the higher level and it's becoming a, almost like a and there's certain moves that are they're that necessary to do to get points so it's all becoming kind of gymnastic, you know, like it's very, it's <laughs> which is a good thing. It, it pushes the level, but in another dimension, it sort of uh, limits it, you know, it restricts the creative, not the creative end because the level of the surfing is so high. So the creative part of pushing that level is, is constant, you know, but uh I don't know what to say. You know, I just hope wherever <laughs> it goes, everyone keeps enjoying it. It's such a beautiful thing. And I hope, uh, you know, it just gets wherever it goes, whether it's a, a wave pool or a you know, somewhere in the ocean or a remote island or whatever. It's just uh, the bottom line is to have fun, you know. Exactly. I think as Jerry Lopez said, the best surfer in the world today is the guy having the most fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, that's a lovely way to actually conclude this interview. Jeff, thank you ever so much for being my guest today and for taking the time early in the morning to to sit down for a chat. Um, How do you feel?
1: I feel good, Amy. You know, your questions are very good. Uh, I can tell you, you've, you've uh, experienced quite a few things in surfing yourself and lifestyles. And uh, thank you for just making the questions nice to be involved with. And I enjoyed your company. Thank you very much. Oh, well,
0: likewise, it was absolutely a wonderful and delightful conversation. Take care, Jeff. Have a great time surfing. Enjoy the waves. Take a wave for me if you can. I will. Oh, yes. Last thing, if there any way that we can connect with you online or have you got an Instagram account or Facebook or something where we can see your adventures and what
1: you're up to? Yeah, I'm not really a super social media wizard, you know, Amy, but I do have an Instagram account. I have a Facebook account, but I'm sort of more active on my um, Instagram account. And it's just um, just Jeff Hackman. That's it. That's great.
0: We'll put the Surf Till 100 link as well, so that if anybody's interested in joining you next May for a retreat, um, they can. And um, and that's, and voila,
1: that's great. Just surfto100.com. Go there and you can see what we're doing.
0: Okay, then, Jeff. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being my guest and uh, take care. See you soon.
1: All right. Aloha, Ian.
0: Well, that was an awe-inspiring conversation. Someone pinched me. I can't actually believe I was talking to Jeff Hackman. I hope it inspired you and gave you some insight on the world's biggest surf company. It was certainly inspiring to find out how it all began and the surreal business deal with the original founders of Quicksilver in Australia. To connect it with Jeff, you can follow him on Instagram. His handle is Jeff underscore Hackman. And it's a fascinating walk down memory lane with snapshots of Jeff's amazing life. You can also find out more about Jeff's latest endeavour, Surf Till 100, on surftill100.com. So 100 is spelt in numbers. And sign up for the next retreat, which is happening in May 2020. Uh, Links to the website are also in the show notes and on your podcasting app. And you can also find them on theoceanriderspodcast.com. The Ocean Riders Podcast is a passion project for me. And if you like it, you can support it in a number of ways. Number one, share your love for this podcast on iTunes by giving it a few stars or a review. Better still, subscribe to this podcast. Anything in this direction increases my ranking and lets more people hear about my fascinating guests and how they are busting the surfing stereotype. Number two, you can comment, join the conversation on social media. You'll find links to my social media accounts on theoceanriderspodcast.com. And alternatively, you can connect to me on Instagram at theoceanriderspodcast, on Facebook at theoceanriderspodcast, or on Twitter at immypodcast. Number three, join me for an episode or sponsor my podcast. Just send an email to hello at theoceanriderspodcast.com and I'll take care of the rest. That put out of the way, I would like to thank Jeff for sharing his story with such candour. It's been a true honour. I would also like to thank you for listening. I really love checking into my daily stats to find out more people are listening from around the world. It's such a privilege. Anyway, until next week, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. Ciao.